and welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for what is now episode 76. And as always, you are joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now, before we get into today's Q&A episode, we just wanted to remind you that if you do enjoy these podcasts, please feel free to tell your family and friends about them. Take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Jack, tag myself, tag the bodybuilding dietitians. And if you are interested in getting in touch with us regarding our coaching services, you can always head over to our website at www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com, which you can also find in the show notes below or any of our Instagram bios. Now, episode 76. So let's get cracking with this Q&A. We haven't done one of these for a few weeks, so... Let's make it a good one, Jack. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited. Let's go. <laughs> okay, so this first question, it says, what food source do you think is severely underrated to include in your weekly diet? Yeah, so this is an interesting one because there's there's a variety of different foods, of course, and each food group or different foods are fairly unique in terms of their nutritional composition. For example, like grains, being higher in B, uh, B vitamins, dairy being higher in calcium. So the at the end of the day, you need a variety of foods to accomplish your nutritional needs. But if I had to pick one food type that like I really enjoy and that you don't really hear that many people are eating, would, would probably have to be like tinned beans or <laughs> something like that because they are really high in fiber. They have a fairly high protein content for vegetarians and vegans, you still need to pair them with something else though to complete to create a complete protein. And yeah, they're, they're all very uh, well-rounded food. Yeah, I sure do love myself a good can of beans or, you know, like a can of chickpeas, but yeah, they're awesome. You know, they're also an awesome source of complex carbohydrates too. Plenty of micronutrients as well. So they're generally a pretty good source of plant iron, things like copper, magnesium, phosphorus. Some even have some zinc in there. They're generally pretty low in fat. So yeah, I know. Just canned legumes. They're awesome. Dude, those things were so awesome during uni because like when I was doing food prep and I was in a rush, you know, and I just needed a good source of some carbs with some protein, you know, like I would literally just like grab a can of beans out of out of the cupboard. And like sometimes you have time to microwave them, but other times you just crack it open, drain it and just eat it with a spoon. Like it's good. You know, <laughs> I love canned beans and they're cheap, like 80 cents a can. Mm. Love them. <laughs> yeah. I don't think you're promoting them that well though, by saying you eat them out of the tin. Why not? No, dude, because like one, their expiry date is like years away in the future and you can transport them anywhere, you know, take them on a plane, take them on a boat. You know, it's just like, you got no excuse. Like if you need to hit your macros, literally just grab a can of beans off the shelf or like you know, we've gone to the beach before to Stratty and stuff and like just grab a can of beans, a can of sardines and you're on your way. But that's another food. I've said this so many times, but I think sardines are totally underrated. Sardines are amazing if you don't mind a little bit of a fishy taste, but sardines, you know, they're an awesome source of protein, awesome source of omega-3 fatty acids because they're calcium. pressurized in the can. Yeah, they've got calcium. Like I think a can of sardines has equivalent to like a cup of milk, generally really? in calcium. I it would be more than that. 
No, it's it's around the same. It's it's I think it's dimes. around that like it's around two hundred and fifty to three hundred milligrams of ca- um of caffeine. No, <laughs> no caffeine in your sardines. Sorry, uh, of calcium in your sardines. So yeah, sardines are amazing. Can you think of anything else? Maybe low fat yogurt mm. or even full fat yogurt. So because- why why do you think that's healthy? Because or underrated, <laughs> it's just a very convenient source of protein, and mm-hmm. it's again high in calcium. It's a HPV source of protein, and like I, I mention it fairly often, and some people are actually surprised. They're like, "Oh, yogurt!" Like they don't really think of yogurt being a something they can have at a meal for for their protein intake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yogurt is amazing. And we learned in food science, it's like one of the most nutritionally balanced foods. Pretty much like, yeah, full fat yogurt, full fat milk, or even if you wanted to get the low fat stuff, you know, you'd still have a few grams of fat generally in there. But dairy products like that, like yogurt and milk are so nutritionally balanced because yeah, you have that HBV protein, you have some carbohydrates, you have a little bit of fat, you have plenty of micronutrients, super duper healthful. So yeah, dairy is the way to go. I love dairy. I love dairy so much. <laughs> what about tofu? You know, tofu is awesome. And I think a lot of people don't appreciate how nutritious tofu is as well. And just nutritionally balanced too, because tofu, you know, it's made from soybeans, but it's got a decent amount of protein in it, obviously. It's also got a decent amount of carbohydrates in it. It's got some fat in it. It's got some fiber in it. You know, generally it is fortified with some calcium too. So, or enriched with calcium. So it's a great source of calcium as well. All of these foods we're talking about, we're always like protein and calcium. (laughs) No, but tofu, tofu is really, really great as well. I can't really, I don't know. Yeah. The honest answer to this question is that I don't think there is a number like underrated foods. Mm-hmm. I think it's just a variety of different foods to satisfy nutritional requirements and also to get a variety of different fiber types. So there's not going to be one magic food like there's not going to be one magic supplement either. Yeah, exactly. You can't just live off like chia seeds, quinoa and kale and spirulina powder, you know, like you need more than that mm. in your diet. And I that's interesting because I think everything that we just listed isn't, you know, in nutritional realm. Like people don't usually list these things as superfoods, right? Because yeah. just like you've said, every food is unique. And generally any food that, you know, comes, is grown out of the earth, you know, or comes from an animal or something, it's generally highly nutritious in its own unique way. And we need a little bit of everything, you know, to really thrive. So that's a thing. Yeah, I think superfoods were a bit of a craze a few years ago, but then I haven't heard quite as much about them Mm -hmm. in recent years. Maybe the hype has died down a bit. Yeah, truth is, I just think food is super. So, yeah. Yes. (laughs) Okay, so we'll move on to another question. So I like this next one. It says, do you think non-competitive bodybuilders make more lifetime progress than competitors because they never get stage lean? I'm curious to hear your thoughts. What are your thoughts? So of course it's gonna depend on the individual. And overall, I think that no, just because you don't compete, you will make more progress because typically the people who do compete, and again, this is a generalization, but I think the people who do compete are gonna be more competitive. Therefore, they'll implement the correct protocols or they'll have a coach who does it for them. And they'll be more motivated to continually make progress because 
if you think about it, if you have a male bodybuilder who isn't competing, they just want to keep growing, then are they really just going to complete, uh, just do a continuous off season of like uh, gaining weight, mini cutting, gaining weight, mini cutting? I don't really see that. I see it more as if they'll reach a particular point and they'll just spin their wheels or they won't really know what to do from there. And I, I do think that getting com- competition lean, and uh, quite a few people have talked about this, but I do think that getting competition lean allows you to kind of reset and create a starting point of gaining an, ex- an extended amount of weight. So it's kind of like an extreme mini cut where you start maybe 15 kilos below what you would mini cut from. And then you have about 10, 15 kilos to gain after competing. Mm-hmm. So, and like, we can't always just continually make progress and competing kind of allows us that block where we don't have to con- continually gaining strength, continually gaining body weight as well. What do you think? No, I think that is a fantastic answer. And I think absolutely, you know, because competitors every few years, you know, they actually have that that set goal in mind that they're going to go through that process of a competition prep, you know, that very strict dieting process to get down to that condition. It's something to chase and it's something to actually motivate them to keep pushing throughout the years and keep training and to keep progressing because they have that massive goal that they're working toward. And of course, each to their own. I'm sure there are plenty of gym goers out there who, you know, they're bodybuilders because they're, you know, very focused on building their body and improving their physique, but they might actually never step on a stage. But I think, you know, competing every few seasons, it just helps keep up that momentum, you know? I I think that, yeah, you definitely can't discount that. And overall, let's actually answer this question. (laughs) I think that, yeah, it's... It's difficult, but I think that in the long run... It's more run, of a discussion answer, not a... Yeah. These sorts of questions, we can't give a yes or no. Mm-hmm. I think in the long run, to be honest, someone who is competing every few years is probably more likely to... Uh, at the same time, some people compete and then they don't enjoy it and then they fall off the wagon. So it just comes down to the person, you know? Because mm-hmm. you do see those people who have never competed before, they get to 30 years old, they end up competing and then they smash it. Yeah. And yeah. Because they, yeah, just amazing that muscle maturity, right? But I guess we could talk about if someone was going into like their 40s or something and they'd never competed. But yeah, like, like kudos to you. Like if you've been in the gym since you've been like 15 years old, you're in your 40s and you've just been trying to progressively overload that whole time, improving your physique, like, right, just staying on track with your nutrition, like not falling off the wagon, you know, all that stuff. Highly commend you for that. But like competing is so awesome for this sport or if you're highly involved in going to the gym and improving your physique because it's that perfect opportunity for you to truly challenge yourself and really see what's actually underneath that body fat. What have you actually built? And you can showcase it in the best way possible. Plus, if you compete, right, you might actually be able to notice your weaknesses. So if you compete and you get really lean and you realize that, 
oh man, you know, I've got a really great, you know, chest and abdominals, but my lower back's really lacking, right? You but can't... that's like saying all runners who run casually have to compete running wise. No, like it doesn't... I know that's, that's the thing as well. So like you can be, you could be a runner, right? And you could just go out for a five kilometer run every day and, you know, try to run a bit faster. Or you could be a runner who, you know, a once every once a year you might compete in a half marathon or something or you might do a cross-country race or you might enter like a track race or something like that so I don't know I, f- I feel like having a competition component if you're involved in a sport is so important I think it makes it so much more enjoyable it gives it it gives it purpose you know it gives it you're, you're actually aiming for something you're working towards something and I also think that if you're truly passionate about a sport generally you will gravitate toward the competitive side of that sport because you do want to improve, you do want to progress. So whether you're a bodybuilder, whether you're a runner, generally, you know, you will think about, okay, cool, maybe I should do a competition, maybe I should do a race so that you can truly challenge yourself and you can see where you compare to other people, you know, and you can set yourself a benchmark to keep improving and I also think that if you truly want to improve and you want to compete and you want to get better compared to if you were just a bodybuilder in the gym who wasn't focused on competing at all you are more likely to invest yourself and invest your time into resources like a good quality coach you know or reading more of the literature on how to actually progress and improve and you know new studies coming out in regards to hypertrophy and training and different nutritional strategies right and i think that with investing more into those types of resources you are more likely to improve over the long run because i i would imagine that if you wouldn't you know do any sort of competitions or anything like that it would be very easy to fall into that trap of you know just continue to do what you're doing you know like when you first enter the gym if you're if you were 40 years old but you started off when you were 15 man a hell of a lot has changed in the last 25 years in terms of what we know in terms of exercise and nutrition science and physique development and don't don't you agree jack it would be so easy to fall into that trap of just continue to perhaps just keep using the same training split you know and keep doing the same exercises and you just you kind of get comfortable with how you look and there's not really that drive to really push yourself to that next level yeah i think you are if you are competitive about something you will want to continually strive to improve and take take it to the next level and continue researching and yeah that is a large assumption but we would hope that people would do that Mm mm-hmm yeah, definitely. It certainly makes, uh, you know, the time invested in the years invested in a sport a hell of a lot more fun, I think. <laughs> yeah. So this next question, Jack, it's a nutrition related one. And it says, how to notice if you need to increase fats during a bulk? So what are some of the signs that you need to increase fats during a bulk compared to, let's say, carbohydrates? So I think in an off season or when you're gaining weight, Having to manipulate fats will be more associated with hunger as opposed to physiological because you would have to have fats very low in order to experience basically the hormonal or physiological results of an inadequate fat intake. Mm -hmm. So they would be basically, or it could be 
GIT as well. So for example, GIT wise, you might notice that your stools don't really flow very well (laughs) and they're a bit rough, which might hurt a bit. Your stools ain't flown in, they're a bit rough. (laughs) So that might be one thing. And that can also, even if you're a moderate fat, but it consume a lot of fiber, that can also happen as well, mm-hmm. uh, especially like insoluble fiber. And the reason why this is, is because fat basically provides some lubrication, if you want to call it, to the <laughs> stool and also to your colon as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and you know, when, when you're looking at your minimum fat intake as well, the Australian Dietary Guidelines, it recommends that around anywhere between 20 to 35% of your total daily calories are coming from fat. But at the same time, it might be more appropriate to base your fat intake off kilograms of body weight. So if you're like in the depths of your off season, aiming for somewhere around one gram per kilogram of body weight per day. And you know, this actually might get you pretty close to that 20% of your total calorie day limit, right? Because if let's say you're like a 90 kilogram guy, right? In the depths of his off season, you're consuming around 4,000 calories per day. I just did a quick calculation, you know, and like 20% of your calories from fat that would equate to around 89 grams of fat per day. And if you had one gram of fat per kilogram of body weight, that's 90 grams of fat per day. So it's pretty darn close. But at the same time, it's, it's always going to differ depending on what your body weight is and how many calories you're consuming. But I'd say for most people, I would rather go off term in terms of their individual body weight rather than the percentage of calories they're consuming. I think that's yeah. more appropriate because you do the similar, you do that for protein, you know, you generally do that for carbohydrates. So I think mm. that's a better way to go. Yeah. I would say that if you're, if you're lower than like even 0.6 grams per kilo of fat in an off season then like that's definitely worthwhile increasing up to like at least about one gram yeah absolutely and you have to think about it too because if you're trying to get all these calories in you know and you're at let's say you use this 90 kilogram guy right let's say he's consuming around 200 grams of protein per day or so the rest of his calories coming from hundreds and hundreds of grams of carbohydrates with minimal fat that's not going to be very palatable at all that's going to yeah. be really hard to down you know you're going to be having to consume just a hell of a lot of just potatoes and rice bubbles and jam and just like it white bread like it'll be really tough because fat it helps with that lubrication in your mouth and not just going to the bathroom. <laughs> but Jack, are there any other signs, you know, that someone should perhaps increase their fat? Yeah, again, it's, it's going to be tough to tell if you have extra body fat, especially in the mm-hmm. off season, but things like a lower libido or lower testosterone as well mm-hmm. uh, could be some signs. Yeah, but potentially. Yeah, it's, we know that you don't need much fat though to in order to, be normalized in those regions. Mm-hmm. So I think the reason why higher fat is recommended by, and it's not, I shouldn't say higher fat because it's 20 to 35% of your daily intake. So it's, but one, it's to get, obtain nutrients and two, it's not realistic for people to have low fat diets mm-hmm. and not recommended either. So. Yeah, that's such a good point. You know, like the, the absorption of fat soluble vitamins, you need a sustainable diet. You know, you can't 
fear fat in the diet. Also, you need to be able to eat in a variety of ways uh, for health and also just, you know, going about daily life. Because when you're eating in a, in a food environment, you know, generally food has fat in it and you have to be okay with that. And that's a good thing. We have the three macronutrients for a reason because they're all essential. But yeah, it's difficult to say, you know, in terms of the libido thing, because obviously we know that fat, it's very important for creating, you know, our different hormones such as testosterone, right? But at the same time, if someone has a higher body fat percentage, remember, we can synthesize our own fatty acids in our body, especially if we're in a caloric surplus and mm. you have extra body fat on you. So it's we'd have to look into the literature for that because I'm not necessarily sure if a higher fat diet per se, I think I've read some studies, right? But a higher fat diet, you know, it doesn't necessarily correlate with a significant increase in testosterone. It's uh, it more plays a role, you know, if, if you're consuming, you know, a sufficient amount of fats while you're in a caloric deficit. But I don't know, it's, it's difficult to mm, say. It's an interesting point. Yeah, mm -hmm. we talked about this before. But yeah, to summarize the question, I would not overanalyze it for starters. I would, if you're in an off season, I would just put it at around one gram per kilo body weight. Mm -hmm. If your body weight goes up by five kilos, up your fat by five kilos. You don't need to, you're not going to lose out on anything if you're 20% plus or minus. Like yeah. it doesn't, yeah. You don't need to look at nutrition in that way all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think just one final thing that just crossed my mind is that, you know, if your other nutrients, they're hitting those upper thresholds. So if you're in improvement season, you know, having protein around that two gram per kilogram mark, it's totally fine to go above that, obviously, especially if you're consuming a lot of carbohydrates because you're going to get a lot of protein from trace sources from carbohydrates. So you might even get closer up to that 2.5 potentially three grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. But the general recommendations for people doing exercise, you know, between one to three hours per day, quite vigorously, you know, like someone like going to the gym and training hard, doing resistance training, it's probably consuming anywhere between, it's, it's a wide range, but probably anywhere between four to maybe 10 grams of carbohydrates per kilogram of body weight per day. So that could potentially be another sign that you could, if your energy expenditure was just through the roof, right? If you are consuming 10 grams of carbohydrates per kilogram of body weight per day at a 90 kilogram guy, right? That is 900 grams of carbs plus, you know, the additional protein that you're consuming, which might be around like 200, 250 grams, right? If you got to that amount of energy and you're like, there's no possible way that I can get more calories in from more carbs and your fats were already at one gram per kilogram of body weight, then I think that's totally reasonable to be like, okay, cool. Clearly I just need more energy and I need why to get it from fat. <laughs> why are you going to the end of the spectrum though? You could be at six grams of carbs per kilo body weight and because, increase the man, fat. Because man, I'm the kind of person that goes to extremes. <laughs> <laughs> I want to. I want to see someone eating. You know, mean close to, has to a kilogram clients, of carbs so. per day. No, I'm just saying hypothetically. If there's this person out there, just you have you are burning a lot of energy per day if you're in this situation. But there's got to be someone on this planet that's gone through this. 
Well, yeah, I've almost <laughs> been to 900. If I lowered my protein by 100 and then put it on to carbs, I would be at 900 yeah, about. So. almost. Well, I before you start prep, you know, there's got to be a day where, or a few days in a row, you've got to go through a period where you're consuming one kilogram of carbs per day. Like, what an achievement, you know? It's, it's equivalent to, like, achieving, like, a 200-kilogram squat. It's like, yeah, and I can eat a kilogram of carbs. <laughs> I think that's I think that's something to boast about. But hey, <laughs> all right, I'll just wait for my refeed days and prep. Yeah. Wow. Wow. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. We'll move on to another one. This next question says, "What are your thoughts on reformer Pilates? Do you really think it can tone and build lean muscle like all the Pilates studios promote?" So isn't all muscle lean? <laughs> that's my first thing that I'd say. But I think what they mean is building muscle without accumulating fat. Mm-hmm. But that'll just come from diet anyway. So you just got to watch out for what these people say because, yeah, if you, I don't know, can you build non-lean muscle? I don't think you can. So I don't know. Well, I guess you could get into the, like, saying endurance runners are better at, you know, storing triglycerides in their muscles for as a fuel source, but I wouldn't necessarily say that they have fat muscles. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) So basically we still need to apply the foundation of what is going to build muscle. And that's going to be progressive overload over time, mechanical tension, muscle damage, and metabolic stress. And sure, depending on your starting point, reformer Pilates will apply all those principles. But if you're very untrained, of course, just like body weight training at home, doing a few push-ups a day, you'll put on muscle. But if Tierra went into the gym and started doing reformer Pilates for a year and stopped training in the gym, then she would lose muscle. Uh-oh, <laughs> regression. Damn it. <laughs> because you're not providing that same stimulus. So yeah. sure, reformer Pilates is great for people who maybe just do running and then they go into Pilates, they'll put on muscle or someone who is untrained and then they start doing pilates it's a great form of exercise still and it helps your stability and mobility but depending on your goals if you want to be a bodybuilder then doing reinformer pilates isn't going to help you yeah oh gosh i could not agree more with what you just said man yeah it just depends on your starting point right because like what amount of resistance are you used to if you've been sedentary or you are an endurance athlete can you, you know, imagine ronnie coleman doing reform no, <laughs> break the freaking carriage thing so that's the thing so the reform of if anyone wants to know what reformer pilates is uh, i'd recommend probably just googling it but it's it's essentially like they call it a carriage and it's kind of like where you lay on this mat that can move up and down uh, what would you call it like these little yeah, wheel it's a things sliding mat thing yeah with springs and stuff like that yeah and you <laughs> hold on to like these two little cables and it's almost kind of like just doing yoga and stretching but like you know sliding around at the same time it looks kind of fun right but yeah the thing is is that it depends on your starting position and what sort of resistance are you used to because if you're not used to any resistance, then yes, starting to apply some resistance, that's going to be progressive overload for you. And that's going to help build a little bit of muscle, right? I can't guarantee you that it's going to get you a toned IFBB girl's glutes, right? By just doing reformer Pilates, because it's that question of once you get to a certain level, how do you keep progressing? And it wouldn't necessarily be you can keep progressing in terms of strength, you know, and further challenging your muscles from that standpoint. 
You could certainly keep progressing from a flexibility standpoint, you know, a mobility standpoint, how well you can balance, you know, your proprioception. It's wonderful for all of those things. And I'm a huge advocate for these sorts of things. And I, I do yoga every single day and you get amazing results from it, right? So you absolutely can't discount that, you know, doing something like yoga, doing something like Pilates, it's still certainly going mm. to benefit you, yeah. you know, in a, in a variety of ways. But if you're talking purely about strength and hypertrophy, I would argue that if you truly want to maximize, you know, the development of your physique, you're going to have to eventually progress uh, from something like Pilates and yoga and start getting into a gym and using a greater variety of different exercises, you know, and you're just, it's, there's gyms for a reason, you know, it is the perfect environment where you have access to all the resources you need to truly maximize and develop your physique because you can progressively overload in a very strategic manner. You know, you can apply more resistance to your body. You can put more stress on your muscles and give them that reason to grow much more than you could on a reformer's Pilates machine. Yeah, definitely. And undoubtedly having a combination of the two is going to be even more beneficial. So sure, if you want to just be flexible, you want to have good mobility and you want to gain, you want to look good, like not um, have a huge amount of muscle, then Pilates would be great. Mm -hmm. But as Tierra said, if you want to satisfy those extra requirements of competing in a physique show or something, then mm -hmm. Pilates isn't going to cut it. Yeah. Yeah, so it's totally up to you. Just ask yourself, what do you really want to do with your body? But I would be an advocate for a little bit of both. <laughs> At least, it'd be good. So this is the last question of the day, and it says, what's one misconception about physique competitors that bugs you? Yeah, this is another interesting question because I think, especially myself, like I've been in, so, so even though I'm not that old, like I've been sort of in this little niche for quite a while now even when i even before i'd sort of fully gotten in it i was thinking like it and so i i kind of find it difficult to imagine what other people portray i guess our niches now and but i still think i don't know based on stereotypes i think people kind of see us as like gym junkies we carry tupperware around um we're really cranky when we diet, that <laughs> we, sort of stuff. We like scream in the gym when we're lifting weights and yell like, one more rep. And yeah, mm. I don't know. I think there's quite a lot of misconceptions, but I'm going to be honest, nothing necessarily bugs me. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't bug me. And I think depending on the type of person you are as well, like I personally, I think I can speak for Tierra, but we see it more as a sport. So we're not really vain and i think some people would see bodybuilders as vain because mm -hmm. they're oh, they're purely focusing on how they look whereas i think tiara and i are more focused on the performance aspect and the the physique comes as a result of the performance oh absolutely i think if you want to be in this for the long game you have to love training you have to fall in love with training and just that feeling you get from beating pbs in the gym and just feeling damn strong i love that more than anything you know i can probably honestly say combined i probably love training more than i i love being on stage but man i, f I just love training <laughs> so you would train even if you looked very average 
Of course. Yeah. Like I well that's like that's the thing it makes me feel amazing the feeling that I get from training just that sensation of being strong doing things that you've never done before but that's a great thing it doesn't have to unless you are very ungenetically gifted and we know from some research studies that there are people who are classified as non-responders so they won't respond as well to strength and hypertrophy training as someone else based on their genetic makeup. But then again, you know, there's also arguments for that, that they might have been a non-responder to that program, but perhaps they just need a different program with a mm. different amount of load, a different amount of volume, different exercises, all that stuff. So yeah, but uh, no, I love training and I would do this if there wasn't a stage because I'm just in love with it. Would That's you? Sweet. It's quite the relationship. <laughs> Ours or our relationship with training? Training. <laughs> but are you the same? You know, would you still train if there wasn't a stage? Yeah, I would. Except it might not be resistance training. Actually, no, it probably would be. But I would probably invest in another sport. Yeah, I would probably do something similar. Like I would do something like powerlifting or Olympic mm. lifting or strong woman or not. My number one, I've talked about this before. I definitely do Spartan races, but... Yeah, so CrossFit, who knows? But I'd still want resistance training to be a huge component of my life because it just, it makes me feel so damn good and I can't imagine life without it. Yeah. Yeah, but misconceptions, I don't know. I think there's a lot of misconceptions. I think it depends on who you're talking to, but I mm -hmm. guess there are misconceptions that, you know, bodybuilders only eat from a, from five different foods. You know, they might eat like, chicken and broccoli and almonds and protein shakes and maybe they might have a steak or something well, I know, yeah i know people in my family like some of the things they regularly say is oh how many supplements are you taking yeah when they they don't seem to realize that i'm a dietitian for starters so <laughs> i kind of know what i'm putting in my body that actually does bug me i'll say that and the other thing would be that I'm going to be injured for the rest of my life, which might be true, but no, more of a crippling injury where like when I'm 70, I'm not going to be able to walk because my back is broken or something like that, which I think is unlikely. I think that's very unlikely too. And I don't think you should be having those thoughts. <laughs> no, they're not my thoughts. There's people in my family. Oh, people think me. you're going to turn into like Ronnie Coleman or something. Yeah. No. <laughs> and they don't, they don't realize that I squat like a fifth of what he squatted. Yeah and those are those are the oh, other other people think oh you you surely you don't enjoy what you eat it yeah. must be gross yeah i hate that i hate when people like are like man your food must not have any flavor i'm like dude i swear i've eaten more spice on one meal than you've eaten in the last month okay my food tastes amazing i know how to cook <laughs> Oh, I hate You were just talking about tins of beans before. Yeah, but dude, you put some paprika on there, like, you know, a bunch of rosemary, a bunch of salt. Like I've I've traveled before with spice jars. <laughs> no, but that's one thing. Even among bodybuilders, they think they even have to be more hardcore if they don't flavor things. Like Oh gosh, like you don't have to eat things plain. That's one thing. That's for sure. I think there's, yeah, there's a lot of misconceptions when it comes to food, when it comes to food groups, what you can eat, what you can't eat that, you know, you have to do vigorous amounts of cardio, you know, or like you're not a bodybuilder unless you are on the Stairmaster for an hour every day or whatever. Or there's even, there's even people like, you know, like they always think that you always have to be drinking protein shakes or like you follow the program, like the best gym program or the, the program that's going to get you shredded or the diet mm. that's going to get you shredded. 
There's a lot of misconceptions. And Jesus, the misconceptions when it comes to peak week. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah, they're probably the worst. (laughs) What are some of them? (laughs) So yeah, having to deplete water, having to not have any sodium, having to not have any carbs, which is even worse. (laughs) You literally can't have anything apparently in peak week. Mm. (laughs) You're trying to peak off nothing. Because apparently being nothing is going to get you to your peak. Mm. Like what's with that logic? (laughs) Yeah, not doing anything would be better than doing any of those things. Yeah. And that's kind of what a peak week should be. It should be very similar to what you already do. So. Or what about people who go for months, you know, without drinking any alcohol, right? And then backstage they're having a bottle of wine or they're Mm. taking shots of vodka or something. It's like... What? <laughs> I can't comment too much on that because I don't know the research. Yeah. Because I, I have known people who've done that and they haven't, they, it hasn't ruined their physique. It hasn't ruined it, but I think it's, I think it, it's safe to say it's a safer route to just, you know, have a little bit more carbs. You have some more glycogen, drink an appropriate amount think, of water so you're not flat and have a bit more have salt. The, the alcohol is due to the, the vasodilation. Yeah. But... It kind of is a poison. It so. is. Dude, have some beetroot juice, man. Like, yeah. literally, just go backstage and have some candy, have some salt, have a little bit of water, get a good pump. Like, I just don't think that you need to be taking shots backstage. It's hard enough to pose sober, okay? You don't need to be posing tipsy or drunk on stage. That's one thing. But yeah, there's a lot of misconceptions. But it's really not as complicated as it seems, you know? Generally, the people who get the best results are just people who just follow the basic guidelines and they're just consistent and they stick to a well-structured plan and they don't get deviated or tempted by, you know, these things that pretty much sound too good to be true. Mm. Yeah. Awesome. So that was the last question of the day, last formal question. And the final question that we always finish on is one thing that we've learned this week. So Jack, you go first. What have you learned this week? So I learned that there was actually a recent study published that uh, everyone in primary school or high school, I'm sure they got told that when they recover from any cardiovascular work, they have to put their arms on their heads because it'll make them recover their breathing faster. Oh yeah, man, it stretches the lungs, bruh. <laughs> and yeah, back then it kind of probably did make sense to us, but like we all, I'm sure we all felt more comfortable putting our hands on our knees and that's what the study kind of compared. So either putting your hand on your head or putting your hand on your knees. And it was actually found that you recovered faster. So I think it was back to resting heart rate f- faster when you put your hand on your knees as mm. opposed to on your head. What was the reasoning for it? I don't know, to be honest. Oh boy. Well, <laughs> I'm interested. I, I want to read this too. And I guess it makes sense because I was always told that as I well. Do, no, I, I, to be honest, I don't think they, I don't think they cited any reason why. Oh, what kind because, of study is this? Well, how are they supposed to find out why? Well, there has to be a physiological reason because of the position Actually, your body is in. or Yeah, it's something to do with the the um, th- thoracic region and how the, um, the rib cage works. But I'm not 100% sure, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Because, yeah, when I was a kid, or even now, I always thought that, you know, you had to stand up tall, put your hands on the back of your head to, you know, kind of help open up your diaphragm. But when you really think about that, it doesn't make sense. You know, Mm. sure. You might be giving yourself a bit of a stretch in your chest musculature, but you're not actually expanding your airways and you sure as hell can't stretch your lungs 
per se. I think it, it really comes down to your actual control of your breathing, you know, like taking nice, deep, big breaths and rather than like shallow breathing, I think it's probably going to come down to that, whether or not you're bent over holding your knees or, you know, you have mm. your arms on your head. Yeah, this is far from my realm of expertise, yeah. running and stuff. So well, <laughs> <laughs> it's just something interesting that it I is. learned. It is. That's good to know. I'm, that, that interested me. Thank you very much. <laughs> what did you learn? So this week I actually learned a lot more about glute training because uh, for my birthday, Jack bought me a Kindle. And my first Kindle purchase was actually the Glute Lab book written by Brett Contreras, which everyone knows as the glute guy. So... I'm learning a hell of a lot about the glutes and among many, many awesome points and many interesting things I've learned from this book, something Brett pointed out, which I think is really strategic is how to actually split up your training volume and exercise selection for the glutes. And he actually recommends splitting it up by using the rule of three or splitting it up into thirds. And the way that you can think about this is how to load the glutes and you can load them in a vertical plane. So a vertical plane would be something like a squat or a lunge, you know, where you are vertically loading your spine. Yeah. Or an RDL, or you can load them horizontally, something like a hip thrust or a glute bridge. And then the third would be loading them laterally. So doing something like a hip abduction. So I just thought that was really, really clever. And it makes a hell of a lot of sense, you know, because the glutes, they have many, many different types of fibers in them going many different ways. And you can't just do one exercise for the glutes. And it actually really makes me think going back, you know, I've always said like, I'm not married to anything, but if I was married to any exercise, it would be the barbell hip thrust. And I still absolutely love the barbell hip thrust, but reading this book, it's really opened my eyes to be like, man, there are so many freaking ways that you can train your glutes. It is insane. Like you have to do more than just barbell hip thrusts if you truly mm. want to maximize your glute development. So yeah. I've started doing abductions again now because yeah. of that. Oh, abductions. They feel so damn good. And like the, we're training at world's gym Mount Gravatt now. And like, they actually have a really good hip abduction machine, which I love. Mm. So, um, it would be interesting though, to get his, or if he's ever done a video on hip abduction machines though, because like sitting forward on them really does, I can do a lot more weight and it feels better mm -hmm. compared to when I sit back. Yeah, like I, I always sit forward. And if you see anyone generally on Instagram, yeah, everyone kind of sits forward. It doesn't mean it's right though. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I don't know. Maybe they just need to redesign the machine. Because yeah. like, yeah, I feel like sitting back, like, no, like it's... Maybe sitting back is for adductors. Or, I don't yeah. know. Because usually they're both machines. Yeah, so. perhaps. Yeah, but definitely if you sit fully back, usually the seats are quite long on hip abduction machines. If you sit back, yeah, you just, you can't I fully just connect with your glutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but guys, if you really want to maximize your glute training vertically, horizontally, and laterally load them, use a variety of different exercises and uh, grow them buns. So I yeah. glutes like Tierra. Oh, dude, they are, they're growing, I promise you. They're growing with science, thanks to Brett. But no, I'm excited. But um, yeah, such an awesome book. Such a good book. I love reading The Glute Lab at night. I always look forward to it. But yeah, guys, that Brett is... Brett Contreras is literally in your dreams. <laughs> he's he's in my prior... No, not quite in my dreams, but before I dream, Brett Contreras is there. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. You're there too. <laughs> <laughs> All right.
right, guys. So that is the end of our 76th episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening, guys. And if you enjoyed the episode, please remember to repost it onto your Instagram story. Tag myself, tag Tiara, tag the Bodybuilding Dietitians, and we'll catch you guys next week.